on the panel, RNZ National, Wallace Chapman here. Thank you so much for all your feedback uh, this afternoon. We'll uh, have more of that for you very soon. But for now, the Commerce Commission is to look into competition into the banking sector for personal banking services, Finance Minister Grant Robinson has announced. Banks have consistently made high profits over a number of years and their returns have outperformed their peers in other countries. New Zealand's banking sector is dominated by a small number of big players, he said. It will not look at banking culture and conduct. Now, Banks increased their margins to generate a record $7.15 billion in after-tax profits last year. Data from KPMG showed. Executive Roger Beaumont, he said, We have a competitive banking sector with 16 retail banks operating in New Zealand, and our banks are highly regulated, well-capitalised and profitable. With us is Associate Professor Claire Matthews, Director Massey Business School, an expert in banking. Dr. Matthews, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Yes, so there's not been an in-depth look into competition issues in New Zealand's banking for some time. That's what Grant Robinson said. Do you think is needed? Um, I think it's needed to settle the question. I'm not convinced that there's a competitive issue in the banking market in New Zealand, but there's a lot of questions being asked about it. There's a lot of concern. Um, the public are unhappy about the profits that are being made. So the best way to deal with that is to have an inquiry and to actually answer those questions. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of uh, unhappiness around this, and it does come up uh, every now and then on the panel, and does it not? So the commission is to look into any barriers uh, consumers facing. Uh, that would include comparing bank offers or switching banks including the extent to which products or services may be tied or bundled. Uh, what will you be watching for, if anything? Um, I'll just be watching to see how they actually do it, um, who's doing the investigation, um, and, and basically what the outcome is and, and what they do find. But it's, and it's going to come down to what they actually look for um, and how deep do they go. I mean, there's a lot of concern about the profits and I've looked at in terms of population. But the personal retail banking side of business is only a part of the business that banks do and the other parts of the business are where a lot of profits may be coming from. Oh, Claire, hi, Cindy here. Listen, this whole, you know, um, inquiry, etc., will take a lot of time, take a lot of money and there'll be an output, which is a big report. But will there be an outcome? What about if a two-line email from Grant Robertson to the banks said, you are not allowed to make any more profit over all the bank, not just the personal banking, but you're not allowed to make more profit per head of population in New Zealand than you make in Australia? <laughs> I, I think that's kind of simplistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's the idea. <laughs> that's the, that's the idea. Yeah, I, I, and I appreciate that. But the reality is that the banks have different costs associated with the operations of different countries. Um, it's possible that a lot of the, some of the overheads associated with running the banking groups comes out of the Australian profit rather than in the New Zealand profits. So the, that, the, I don't the, think the that's the case, though, is it? 
they're separate well, businesses, and, and the bottom line is that for every oh, per head of population, which is a pretty fair geographical com- comparator, they make more out of New Zealanders than they do out of Australians because all the same arguments would apply to Australia as they do to New Zealand. I mean, that, that, that trans-Tasman profit differential has been a bit of a sticking point, hasn't, hasn't it, Claire? Oh, absolutely. We are, I mean, the Australian banks, there's a lot of comparison that, between how things are charged in New Zealand versus Australia. So there's definitely a question there. It's not clear that the um, inquiry is going to look at that. It may do, and I think that would be something that would be worthwhile them looking at. But the profits are coming from different parts of the business, and it's we don't actually have a handle on what parts of the business are providing the profits, either in New Zealand or Australia. Um, and we do have to remember that the banks do have to make a profit, but part of it is that they're getting bigger. And... Yeah. The profits that we look at and that we get concerned about are in the dollar term. And if they're getting bigger, they can be making the same proportion of profit, but making a lot more in dollar terms. But, and I've actually seen a graph today that indicates that actually proportionately their profits haven't changed a lot for um, a number of years. So it is a matter of how you look at their profits. And it's just that there are big organisations and therefore the profits that they make are big numbers. All right, just t- turn your head a bit, Claire, so we can hear you just a, a little bit uh, better, a bit of a, a bad line here. Alan Blackman. Hi, <clears throat> Hi Claire. Um, so, I mean, the big problem here seemingly is the $7.15 billion profit after tax. <clears throat> I guess the flip side of that is if that's, if that's the profit, then um, they must have paid quite a bit of tax um, to the New Zealand government, I guess, I'm assuming that they pay tax at a decent rate. If this was a, you know, a New Zealand company or something like that and made a $7.15 billion profit, it would be lauded as a great success. But, I, you know, again, the problem seems to be that the majority... Australian-owned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The National Australia Bank of New Zealand. Um, yeah. But, um, OK, so we want to introduce a little bit more competition. So the official cash rate is currently 5.5%. Um, the cheaper, cheapest one-year mortgage rate I could find online was uh, 6.89%. So why don't we all just borrow straight off the Reserve Bank? There we go. <laughs> Simplistic. Clear. <laughs> yeah. and, but, I mean, um, the New Zealand Bankers Association made the point in the statement that uh, Wallace read out at the start. There are 16 banks operating in the retail sector in New Zealand. It's just that New Zealanders tend to go to the big four or five. Hmm. And we do need to remember that there are other options available and that they can switch. What I don't think the banking inquiry is going to look at is actually that biggest barrier to switching is people's perception of the problem as opposed to the actual issue. Well, so let's, let's hope. Banking. Sydney, I was just going to let's hope that actually this is a chance for this commission to get to the bottom of that. How much is actually due to the fact that Claire Matthews is saying these are massive corporate corporations? Surely you'd want them to be well run, as uh, Roger Beaumont is saying. Cindy, Roger used to work with me at TVNZ. Okay, he's a lovely man. But um, <laughs> we are way behind, Claire, aren't we, with things like open banking? They've got open banking in Australia, and that's a big a barrier to switching is all the hassle. Once you get open banking, it's going to be much easier. Why are we dragging the chain with things like open banking? I agree. Open banking potentially uh, could make a difference, and we're a bit behind the eight ball there. Yep. In reality, it's not a hassle to change banks. We just perceive that it's a hassle to change banks. Well, actually, I think it probably is because you, you you have to do it. You know, with open banking, it's going to be a lot easier 
to just transfer things, but the sort of the forms, etc., that you have to go through now. Well, it's a very to the new bank. I, I'd, I'd be interested. To, uh, I'd be interested to hear our um, panel listeners on that because I think it's one of those things. Uh, Claire, Ellen, Cindy, is it a again a cultural thing that you stay with your bank no matter what? I know, I've stayed with my bank since I was what eight. And, and For no reason. And so did I until I got to the end of my mortgage and then they hit me with a 50 buck charge to discharge the mortgage. The thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars they'd made in profit off my mortgage and then they have the temerity to charge me 50 bucks to discharge it. So I went to another bank. I get them. You get, you get upset easily. <laughs> it's the principal, damn it. <laughs> okay, so finally, uh, Dr. Mathis, is there a, 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 while we're waiting for this commission, is there something that we can do uh, in our own volition? If you are unhappy, if you, are, if you listen to this now and you are really unhappy with your bank, but you've been with your bank for uh, 17 years, change. Yeah, absolutely. And if you decide who you want to go to, go to that bank and ask them to help you do it, and they will do it for you. Mm, I'll so bet, yeah. There's very little that you need to do. The only thing you will have to do is you will have to do the whole verification process if you're not an interesting customer, and unfortunately that's something you're going to have to do, whatever, that's anti-money laundering, it's a totally different issue. All right, very good. Thanks for um, bringing with us. That's uh, Associate Professor Claire Matthews. She's an expert in banking. She said it's fair enough that it's happening, but uh, not sure what the outcome will be. Well, you How know, long have you been with your bank, Cindy? Oh, forever. You see? Forever. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, the last time I wanted to borrow some more money, because you know me, I always need more money, I had to go through that verification process. And one of the questions was, um, do you have services that you are not prepared to give up, e.g. Netflix? And I felt like saying, you know, look, <laughs> I'm 105. If I want to keep Netflix, I will. And it was, a, I mean, it was a successful process, but right. it was lengthy. And, you know, you actually wouldn't want to do it. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, probably most people in my era, anyway, they probably started off with the post office savings bank and then just sort okay. of went along yes, as that got right. sold off in the 80s exactly. or whatever it became. And yeah, yeah. Remember that book used to, uh, yes, oh, an orange, yeah, an orange yep, book, and you used to fill it out Absolutely. by pen, and yep, you're very proud yep. of it. And, and the black like signature and everything. You know? That's right. <laughs> oh, boy, that was secure. Those were the days. Hey, bring, bring back that technology. <laughs> uh, it's 17 past four. Wonderful to have your company this afternoon. We are with Alan Blackman and Cindy uh, Michener today, the panel. Health inequity has been in focus in the last day or so. The New Zealand Herald story that Auckland surgeons must now consider ethnicity in prioritising patients. Health NZ has introduced an equity adjuster score aiming to reduce inequity, ethnicity being one of five factors. Several surgeons quoted as saying, although unhappy with it, it's ethically challenging to treat anyone on race. It's their medical condition. That must establish the urgency, said one surgeon to the Herald. But a number of studies show Māori and Pacifica are less likely to be referred or accepted for treatment in the first place. And once in, get less treatment. This tool rolled out in February is now being rolled out across other districts due to the evidence that it is eliminating inequities in health. So let's bring in Peter Crampton. He's a professor in public health in Kohatu, the Centre for Haura Māori at the University of Otago, a specialist in public health medicine. Uh, Professor Crampton, welcome. Uh, kia ora, Boris. 
How do you feel about the story, and how do you feel about this model, this equity justice score? Yeah. Okay. Look, uh, Wallace, uh, the context for this equity justice score is the long-standing observation that Maori and Pacific health outcomes are poor in relation to Pākehā. So it's a policy that responds to that observation. And it's one of a whole suite of approaches which have been tried over the years and the decades to try and lessen uh, that gap between health outcomes for Māori and for Pacific people um, and for Pākehā. So it has a, there's five factors which go into the consideration. And I think one really, really important point is that clinical urgency is the overwhelmingly important factor. So that takes precedence. And then uh, this time on the waiting list, geographic location, thinking about people who live in more isolated areas who tend to have uh, poor access to services. No. Uh, ethnicity, and also socioeconomic deprivation. The, so there are the other factors there. What about that yeah. notion, and just uh, uh, and maybe if you could just turn your head slightly again, we're having a bit of trouble with the phone lines today, Peter, but what about that notion? And it's some, uh, some surgeons quoted as saying this, you know, that it is the actual medical condition that must establish the urgency, one surgeon said. W- what would you say to that? Well, I think everyone agrees with that, but within that observation, there's a huge amount of latitude. Um, there's hundreds, well, thousands of people on waiting lists, and uh, the within the current funding context for New Zealand, for the New Zealand health system, the uh, the process of prioritisation is necessary. So uh, there needs to be some sort of ranking process, and this policy, as I've already said, is a response to the observation that uh, once uh, Māori and Pacific people reach hospital, even then their outcomes tend to be poorer. And there's a whole lot of barriers in place even before they do reach the hospital. And it's a response to that. And uh, this sort of approach has been taken over the years in different contexts uh, in attempts to reduce uh, the gap. No. Peter, we've got a panel with us. I'll jump in and we'll come back to you. Uh, uh, so stay, please do stay there. Alan, you first. Yeah, I guess um, why the wait lists in the first place? I mean, that's probably another issue. But, you know, it's, it's, it's dreadful to hear that there are thousands of people waiting and waiting for so-called elective surgery, you know, things like knee replacements and hip replacements and hernia. Like, like that's a choice. I mean, you know, that, that to me is, is something that you absolutely have to have. And so this, this thing about elective surgery, I think, is an oxymoron. But Okay, um, you're wondering why the, why the why big wait list in the first place, Cindy? I mean, I think this outcry is overkill. You've, Peter, you've said that this is criteria number four, okay? We're not suggesting that a Māori or Pacifica person with a sore thumb gets put in front of a Pākehā person who has serious heart issues. It is criteria number four. Four after your clinical need, your time on the waiting list. So it seems to me to be terribly sensible and just a the dog whistle sort of outcry for political reasons. 
Yeah, I did. I did wonder about that actually, because um, this was introduced here in Auckland in February, and we're sort of only hearing about it now. So, you know, why? Why now? All right, all Peter, do you want to respond to that? Well, I think uh, Alan and Cindy have both made really, really good points. Uh, look, Alan, just picking up on your point about waiting lists. Yes, absolutely. Uh, one can question why. Um, people wait so long and why so many people wait so long mm. and uh, look just just on that we, we as a as a community uh, we say we want certain things from the health system and we say we want our elective surgery yet we resist uh, paying for that properly so that we can get the services that we say we want um, in a nutshell from my point of view Cindy yes uh, from my point of view, this is an overreaction. Um, the context is election year where there's a lot of um, focus on uh, the health system, the politics of the health system, and anything to do with Māori or Pacific tends to get picked, picked up and talked about, uh, particularly in election year. Yeah, uh, wasn't, remind me, uh, Professor Crampton, wasn't one of the reasons in abolishing the DHB model very big news when it broke because it was a significant part of our social history, the old DHBs, and setting up Health NZ was to do several things, one being to address the postcode lottery, but another to develop policies to reduce iniquities within Pacifica and Māori. Am I right? Yes, you're right. Uh, it was to even up the service delivery and, and make the system fairer overall. And, and this policy, which has been implemented in Auckland and, and now I think is going to be rolled out in Northland as well, uh, is one such approach. All right. Very good to have you on. Thanks for being with us. That's uh, Peter Crampton, the Heath Professor in Public Health in Kōhatu, the Centre for Hauru Māori at the University of Otago. He's a specialist in public health and medicine there. Uh, you get the sense it's going to be a big year, isn't it, election year? It already is. <laughs> well, it's full steam ahead, huh? If this, hey? if this was introduced in February <clears throat> uh, and all of a sudden it's, you know, uh, become a big deal now, if it was the number one criteria... It's a big deal. I just think it is electioneering. But, no. but it's not really because it was brought up by Barry Soper. I mean, the, you know, the story is written by Barry Soper. It wasn't brought up by, you know, the opposition health spokesman or, or whatever, spokesperson, sorry. Well, you just never know. 25 past four of the panel. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I'm just, I'm just jumping in here uh, while I can because we have had such just a completely different topic, uh, <laughs> such a big response regarding Rose's chocolates. <laughs> Of all topics. Look, how do I say this? You don't like Rose's chocolates. You're really down on them. And I am uh, in a position of ignorance because I haven't had them for years. Anyway, Wallace, I can confirm Rose's since the closure of Dunedin are not good. <laughs> Everything the panellists said, correct. Not only are the fillings reduced in niceness, there is no longer any lovely flowing peppermint filling among the assortment, but hard peppermint flakes, and the chocolate yeah. is no longer hard and glossy. It's soft and dull. Interesting. Um, by the way, Turkish Delight no more. 
Uh, oh. That's a fact check. I that. So. Anyway. Uh, and also, too, well done, Sydney, showing gratitude, and he would have been grateful later, or his grandson would be, uh, regarding the fact that you decided to give a $100 koha mm. to a person, uh, your daughter, if you weren't listing, your daughter... Uh, lost her wallet. Lost her wallet, exactly. And yeah. a shoe. And a shoe, yes. yeah. <laughs> Although <laughs> someone says, I find a wallet, then I will always take the cash out, but ensure that the wallet gets back to its owner, because I think that's the best thing to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 26 past four of the panel. Oh, yeah. The listeners. It's giving them their own koha. <laughs> Wonderful to have your company. Now, uh, I wanted to come to this. This is interesting. On Friday, Raj Chakraborty's I've Been Thinking was about those small twists you do to a recipe to make them your very own. And he asked listeners to send in theirs. So to that, we have Alison, who has a very simple twist but it sounds really quite lovely. Welcome, Alison. Thank you, Wallace. How are you this afternoon? Very good, thanks. Now, your little twist. My little twist is to good old leek and, and potato soup is to add two pears. Just add two pears and the sweetness just elevates it to another level. Well, you should have seen the uh, uh, panellist's face. <laughs> it wasn't pretty, Alison. Whole oh. pears, or what? What? What shape are these pears in, Alison? They peeled and just, mashed yes. up, and yes, you can just add, you know, William Bond questions into Alice, anything you've got. Right, so leek pear and potato soup. Leek pear and potato soup. Mm. No, I'd, I'd take the leeks out personally, and then it'd be yummy. No, oh, no, no, Alison, no, no, don't leeks listen to the devil's vegetable. Don't listen to oh. Professor Blackman. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he's a chemist. He's a chemist. Yeah. No. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> and he's not Welsh. <laughs> I True. absolutely love my leek and potato. So Ooh. when I heard this, uh, a pear, I thought, this is high in cuisine. I mean, this is something that a, uh, your French cafe might do, Alison. Is it tasty? It's very nice, yes. You can keep your bouquet garni and so on and your herbs, but uh, the pear just, just does something wonderful. Thanks for listening, Alison. Thanks for being Thank with you. us. Very Thanks good. Well. All right, there's the twist. Keep them coming. 2101, what's yours? With us now is Nigel Cura. Nigel, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Hey, Wallace here. How are you, Nigel? I'm good, thank you. You might have heard Alison there. Her twist was putting a pear into leek and potato soup. What's yours? Well, I have a few, but uh, um, I've been fire roasting lamb legs for about six to eight hours, depending upon um, uh, on how quickly we get to them. And uh, they're, they're quite delicious. They're a cross between cooked and smoked. So that's, uh, that's really quite something. Uh, we base we base them with honey and uh, oh, beautiful uh, finely chopped uh, rosemary. Um, <laughs> now we're smiling. <laughs> now they're smiling, Nigel. <laughs> yeah, no, delicious. That sounds good. That yeah, sounds, sounds good. good. And also, uh, as I understand, Nigel, another one here: uh, Iranian rose petals cut finely and pomegranate molasses in your muffins and pancakes. Well, it's um, it's brilliant. <laughs> flavour that exists more in the sinuses and, and on the edge of your breath rather than on your tongue. So, uh, you, like you were talking about cardamom on the day question, yes. and um, that's one of those flavour carriers. So, uh, with a bit of cardamom, it brings the rest of the flavours to life. Nah. 
And pomegranate <laughs> molasses is um, not only incredibly sweet, but also it's almost like a spice. And, and the Iranian rose petals, an unusual ingredient, I know, but it actually doesn't take many of them. And I bought a, a bag thinking that I probably should have got two, but I've had that bag for nearly two years now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they, they go very far. <laughs> Cindy. So, Nigel, I'm a, I'm a bit of a person that follows recipes, but uh, a little while ago, I changed the way I cooked chicken. I used to cook it, uh, roast chicken, as per the instructions on the bag, and then my daughter actually said to me, no, it's not how you do it. Put it in the oven for three hours on 150, and man, can I tell you, it is 200% better than the way they tell you to cook it on the instructions. What do you think about slow roast, Nigel? I've experimented with this quite a bit, and, and I have to agree, especially with the larger chickens. If yep. you drop the temperature down a bit, and um, the most important thing is to to put a heat shield above them, so uh, sort of or in a bag. Oh, in the bag. Well, I haven't done much of that kind of cooking. I'm a little bit sceptical about the bags themselves being, you know, sort of all that safe. So I, I tend to just um, put a heat shield, uh, or, or you know, basically a small oven tray, a couple of inches down from the top of the oven. Love and, it. Uh, leave the temperature low and um, maybe towards the end take that off for browning purposes. But if you want fall apart chicken. Oh, um, yeah. beautiful. Mm. beautiful. Three hours. Nigel, yep. lovely to have your company on the panel today. <laughs> Thank you so much. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, you're giving us some joy there, that's for sure. You, Alan. Uh, a couple more here. Uh, I put orange and orange rind into my pumpkin soup along with coconut milk. Another one here, mint sauce on asparagus rolls. Ooh, asparagus, no. Is that no, like a, a lemon twist in your martini? Exactly. So we're talking twist this afternoon. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> You're on the panel with uh, Alan Blackman and Cindy Mitchner this afternoon. 29 to 5, by the way, the panel, always on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. If you've missed the show, you can go there. It's time for headlines.